Hello and welcome to UC, uh, Good Keeping, UCSD Cricket's very own cricket podcast. Today we will be talking about the recently concluded uh, India versus England series, starting with the tests, then we're going to jump to the T20s and finish with the ODIs. Gokul, would you like to start us off? Yeah, uh, so okay, we'll open with the tests. Um, overall, I think we see again another example of just India being ridiculously, ridiculously dominant at home. Uh, you know, player like Axel Patel, who made his debut, came in and spun like he was a veteran and just looped over the English batsman like crazy. Uh, if you want to talk about the first test specifically, that was, you know, the only one that England won. So it is kind of a interesting one to talk about. It was a flatter pitch, and I think that played to England's strengths. Um, obviously, I mean, we, we know that Joe Root can play spin, but it was in this match that he really showed up. He had a double century. It was a really, really great double century. Uh, where he was able to negotiate the Indian spinners away. Um, and then from there, I think the rest of the English batsmen were kind of exposed. You know, when, when uh, Root, Root didn't really step up again for the rest of the series. And, you know, that's fine. You, but you also expect the other batsmen in your team to step up. And really no other English batsmen stepped up to the level that he did or that to the level that any of the Indian players were doing so. So I think that really exposed the kind of pitches that they're playing with over in England in their county system that's just not conducive to spin. Um, and it's hurting them whenever they come to the subcontinent. You know, India has every right to make spinning pitches if they can play it. Or even if they can't play it, you know, if they can make the opponent play it worse, then that's how it's going to be. And I think if you look specifically at the county system, uh, you see that the teams with the best spinners, and right now that's Somerset, because they have both have Dom Bess and Jack Leach, they're consistently making the county finals. So we know that spin plays a role in winning games in England. But if you're not creating pitches where spin is big and spinning pitches are important, uh, if you don't have that kind of culture, then you're just kind of shooting your own batsman in the foot. And I think this test series was a big example of England doing just that. Okay, but uh, having said that, um, uh, of course, it's fair for India to lay out whatever pitch uh, suits them. But where do you draw the line between what is too favorable to, for the bowler and what is too favorable to the batsman? Like in the first test, we saw an extreme of um, the first three days of that first test were bowling on a road. Similarly, that third test, I think it was the one that entered in two days. Right. That was the opposite mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. Where do you draw the line of what is a good pitch and what's a bad pitch? Well, I think part of it is, well, the first test is definitely a flat surface. And I think that was part of the reason that there was turn, but it was slow turn. And that's the type of turn which you're not getting into danger playing on the back foot, right, so to speak. So as inexperienced as England are against spin, that pitch worked out in their favor. And it did give a result, though. So despite it being a road, I think the first test surface resembled what India has been putting out for the last 10 years, right? Where the first and second days were the best for batting. The third day, you start to see some signs of turn. And fourth and fifth day, it becomes really hard to bat. And I think on these type of pitches, the toss becomes really important. And the fact that England had the game to play well on this pitch 
made India uh, like turn out the remaining three pitches in a like a sort of dust bowl. Like Virat Kohli even said to Ollie Pope when he was batting in the first test, after singing the bat, this is the last of the, these wickets that you'll get. Like he was really, I think, pissed to the point that the domination that India had for the last 10 years at home, it was being challenged. I will say, though, there was uh, kind of bringing back up what Ariman said, there's also a distinction we have to make in between what's considered unfair for test cricket and what's considered unfit for test cricket. I think the third pitch, which is the third, sorry, the third test, which had the pitch that ended the game in uh, two days, I think that was an example of a pitch that was unfit for test cricket because if you look at the scores in that uh, match, India didn't bat that well either. There was, you know, there was a Rohit 50, but they were also out for less than 200, as was England. And England had a 50, but again, they were out for two, less than 200 and the game got finished really quickly. Part of that, again, we can, we can attribute to the fact that English batsmen don't play spin very well. But also, it's not like the Indians are playing spin that much better either. So that would be an example of a pitch I would say was unfit for test cricket because it did, it wasn't a fair competition between bat and ball. Ball dominated bat so much more. But I don't think that the second pitch, the second test, which is another big India win, I don't think that was as bad. And I think that was a pitch closer to what India would have wanted from their batsmen. Their batsmen were playing spin wonderfully. They crossed 200 both times. I think one time they even crossed 300. Meanwhile, England couldn't muster up a single innings to cross 200. So that was kind of the pitch they were looking for. At the same time, India still won the third test. So even if it was unfit, they still won. So I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. What do you guys think about that? For, for, for the third test especially, I don't think like the Indian batsmen, batsmen played extremely bad. For example, like Rohit made 49 and Pant made his 100. Sundar made 96 as well. So it, it was definitely not a bad pitch for batting. It was just England was, it's not conditioned for spin bowling. I think part of where, I think the second pitch, despite it being a big England loss, was the best pitch of the series. And the sense that when the conditions are tough, I think the third test was, it showed that even with proper application it was unplayable but the second uh test we saw Rohit hit 160 with most of the other batsmen on both teams apart from Usher in the second innings didn't really like they it showed that if you put in the work and if you just mm -hmm. apply yourself for the surface you are able to score the runs yeah. and that is how India has been for years so I think the second uh test surface is probably the best one but yeah as Navya said I think England's Pacers did wonderfully considering how less yeah. assistance there was. And I think James they lost Anderson was showing up like every day and taking wickets. I was so like, how is this guy doing this still? Exactly. Especially at his age too. At yeah. 38, he's still doing that. Oh, so damn. I think they lost the series with their spin bowling. Leach looked good, but both Ali and uh, Dom Bess looked woefully out of place, at least when it came to on the bowling. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. it was just even highlighted by the fact that Axel Patel came into the series brand new and spun his way to absolute victory and with you know tons of wickets, matched bunches of fivers. But so I, I think England are going to look at this series and really rue this as a lost opportunity. You know, they were coming off a fantastic series when in Sri Lanka came in and crushed 
the first test during a root double century, and then they couldn't muster up any more strength after that. And I think they're going to look back, hopefully make some changes to how they treat spin in their own country. And over time, these kind of competitions will become more and more fair. Yeah. Um, I'd like to propose a question now, uh, just to with the last question of the testing. A lot of players whose reputation were what left the series in, like, ruined right like i think someone like people expected a lot more of someone like pujara or Kohli or even ashwin to that extent but wh who do you guys think were the players who left the series with a better reputation than they went to the series with both sides i think um on the indian side i don't think anyone had a sharp increase in their stocks in this in this test series in akshar patel um and keep in mind this guy's picking up fivers and he is the replacement for the first choice player that plays his role, who's Ravindra Jadeja. So if your backups are picking up fifers against the top test team and the, mm -hmm. one of the top test teams in the world, then that's just testament to the depth of Indian cricket. So I think on the Indian side, he definitely benefited the most out of the series. Um, yeah. I, I also wanted to Rishabh point Pant out... as well. Yeah, Rishabh Pant. And I also wanted to point out Washington Sundar. He yeah. did extremely well batting. Um, Although he did not do like he did not get much bowling, but his batting was pretty good. And on those turning pitches where people like uh, Stokes or Root weren't performing, he was performing. So like yeah, I think he was also someone who is who will be looked out at in future test matches. Definitely. Uh, on for the on English, the English front. yeah yeah, cool. yeah. So for the English side, it's, it's not many. Uh, I would say of people who came in and then left with a brighter reputation, I would say firstly, Dan Lawrence. Again, he didn't have a lot of opportunities to really do a lot here, but I think that final 50 he showed in the fourth test where he really, really fought it out and he you know, played almost 100 balls to get to that 50 on a pitch where his teammates were collapsing around him and in a series where his teammates had collapsed around him. I think showing that uh, he could get a 50 on this kind of a pitch. I think that's a testament to his quality. Hopefully that he kind of brings that to the next couple of tests England plays. I think uh, Ollie Stone, he only had, I believe, one opportunity, I think the first test. But he and James Anderson kind of showed that, hey, even Pacers can get something in India. We can take wickets. We can be threatening. So I don't think it rose much, but I think people will look at Ollie Stone and be like, Mm, there's someone there. There's a proper bowler in there. And I think the last player to possibly have his reputation a little bit increased was Zach Crawley. And I'm only saying that because he got a 50 during the uh, third test, which was the test that ended in two days. The fact that he was able to get a 50 on that kind of a pitch uh, while both India and England were collapsing, I think is something that he can look back on and be really proud of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. I think uh, I agree with Dan Lawrence. Uh, he was shuffled all over the batting order. He batted at three in the first game of the series and then went all the way down to number seven for um, when he got his second chance. Yeah. And in the fourth test, he came back in. He got 46 in the first innings and uh, he got a 50 in the second mm -hmm. innings, right? So I think that really showed that... Um, that positivity, I think that the younger English players uh, did have. He showed that on debut at Sri Lanka as well. Yep. 
but I just think it's it's promising to see. I think another young player who we saw, Ollie Pope, he was at the other end of the spectrum. We saw him really struggling. So it shows two different approaches or and two different players who England will are definitely a big part of England's future. So yeah, you can see that. And lastly, I wanted to say Ben Stokes. We already know he's probably the best all rounder in world cricket, but um. I wanted to point out his bowling. I know he hit two or three fifties with the bat, but I think people forget about how good his bowling is. Like he makes things happen, yeah. even when there's nothing for him. So I think he had a couple of four wicket hauls, and mm-hmm. when the spinners were struggling, he really picked it up and said, "Okay, like even after struggling, like grinding out with the bat, he would have eight nine over spells in the heat and picking up big wickets like Broad Coley." So I just think that should be appreciated considering it was a tough tour for England's book. Agreed. Yeah. He was like, uh, I, I think it was Washington Sundar who was getting to his 100, and then he like picked up three wickets in a row in his last over mm-hmm. and <laughs> denied the century. So yeah, yeah. pretty good stuff. Right, so let's get on to the T20s now? Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yep, okay. I, I think the T20 series was an absolute banger. Like the, I think it was the last match uh, decider. Yeah. Yes. Last India match. won 36 runs. Yeah. Oh my God. That was such a good series. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think one of the biggest um, talking points about the series from uh, from the Indian team's perspective was that opening combination and where KL Rahul fits in. Uh, you started off with Rahul Dhawan, didn't quite work, ended up finishing the series with Rohit Kohli. Um, I think. Um, one of the key questions to ask is, does Rahul fit into that first 11 that goes to the World T20? I think Rahul's praying that Kohli is a bad actor. That's the only <laughs> way I see it. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's true. I think the depth, as Armin, I think you stated in the um, test segment, was the depth in Indian cricket is fantastic right now. And we saw Surya Kumar Yadav, Ishan Kishan, both came in got 50s in their first bats at bats right so they were so it just destructive need to have be on top of your game right and so there's always people that are pushing for your spot so if Coley can make that spot his own i don't really see rahul coming back okay, at all, or? arguably uh, india's best at, at the same time i feel like kl rahul is uh, is india's best T20 batsman today and 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 to defend that what i will say is that before this T20 series um at, if i remember correctly this this stat is from Jared Kimber um the last time KL Rahul got out for a single digit score was in 2019 2019 uh, no batsman has ever gone that many innings in any format without getting out for less than 10 but then uh, T20 would like 2020, we didn't have many matches, so I don't know how good that started. It was 38 innings. 38? 38. Okay, okay. Then I that, like, I also think he's India's best T20 batsman right now, right? But if Kohli can, Kohli has said he wants the two best batsmen in the team playing the most balls. He's, I think he referred to himself in Rohit because he said that in the fifth 20, right? Yeah. But where then would you see uh, Rahul fit in? Because Surya Kumar looks like he's made the number three spot zone, and a good IPL will only solidify that. So where do you see then Rahul? Okay, so in? for me personally, I would play Rahul over Rishabh Pant at number five. 
Um, I think Rahul's capable to, of keeping in T20. I also think um, he is good enough to adapt his game to different batting orders. We've seen him do that in ODI. He does play at five really well. Um, it's a slightly different role in T20s, but he can definitely um, uh, speed up um, uh, really quickly as we've seen him do in the IPL. So I think he can play at number five. But then I don't see him playing as destructively as Ishraf Pant plays at number five. I do. <laughs> okay, I guess. No, I think it really depends on uh, Pant's IPL. Yeah. Because I think last IPL, we saw Pant really, really struggle to time the ball, right? Mm-hmm. But I think winter, it seems like Pant, even if he tried to edge the ball, he wouldn't be able to. It seems like he's he just seeing uh, like soccer balls instead of cricket balls. So... I think that this IPL is really crucial, especially since India is not going to have a lot of game time ahead of the World T20 other than that in the T20 format. So I think this IPL is a make or break for a lot of the fringe players. Do, do you think uh, Do you think we uh, the Indian team would decide to drop Shreyas Iyer and then put KL Rahul in? Yes. I um, think, honestly, this kind of question will only be answered after the IPL. And I think, but I think if you pick your 15, you know, you're the 15 man squad or however many people you want to pick to go to, or to, to go to India for the World Cup. Um, <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, Kay, you can't really leave him out of the squad, especially considering he came really back into form during the ODI series. I know it's not the same format, but still. Mm-hmm. So, but I, you know, I don't know how accurate it would be to like, guess about the thing when the IPL is right ahead of us, if you know what I mean. But I think Ayer, yeah, solidified a spot at least, like to answer Navya's question. I think before the T20 series, if you ask that question to the management or anyone, it probably Ayer would be the obvious person to go. But we saw in both, I think he had two or three at-bats in the T20 series. Yeah. And he was amazing in all of them. He had, I think, a 60 or something mm-hmm. in the first T20 to get. India somewhere, and he had a couple of nice cameos to to get the um, to push the gas pedal when India needed it. So it showed how much he's grown as a T20 player. So honestly, I think that competition for slots is a good thing. It shows Indian cricket's in a good place. Um, on, on the English side, one thing I want to bring up is what do you think of Owen Morgan's role in the team as a batsman? He made 33 runs in three innings in that series. Um, well, the, 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 that's almost KL Rahul level. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great series for him. Um, but I mean, it's it's Owen Morgan. He's you know, England's like white ball head. He's so so valuable to their setup, and I think he's he's such a class player. He, I mean, you know, his stats have never always been the greatest, so it's just a matter of time before he bounces back to his level. But I think another another thing I want to bring up um, before we move on, I guess, is I think this shows the importance of Joe Root in an English T20 side. I know he hasn't played a lot of T20s since the last World Cup. He's only played a few games for Yorkshire and a couple of international matches here and there. But I think we saw uh, on, on some of the slower pitches that where David Milan was not able to get his game going and he just wasn't able to, you know, either play the anchoring innings he's good at or the explosive innings that he's good at. And I think having someone like Joe Root who knows how to handle those kind of things and uh, also play that anchoring role, 
I think if they have him in the squad, even if you know he's not going to give you the explosive power hitting that you always want, having that kind of stability and having a guy who can go in and say, hey, let me do this role and I can do it really, really well. I think if, if he's not directly in the 11, I think he should definitely be in the squad for the T20 World Cup. I think he definitely will be in the squad. I think when in the last World T20, which was also in India, um, when they made England made the final, yeah. Joe Root was an integral part of that T20 team because he's England's best player of spin. And on slower surfaces, he can get you a single every ball and as well. And even when they chased 220 against South Africa in the group stage. We saw Joe Root hit 80 off, I think, 40 balls or something to take that home. So we've seen he has an other side to it. But how would you tell Dawid Milan, who's the number one T20 batsman, that here your spots, like, we're taking away your spot? Because he's been a really big part of England, England becoming the number one T20 team. So then do you think for David Milan, the IPL is also very important? Extremely, extremely important. Extremely. This is this is to show that he can play exactly. Easily. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I don't I don't think you know, even even if he like, if we pull in Joe Root and he has to come in and, and slot in for Dawid Milan, I think if he struggles on these kind of pitches, at some point he has to understand. Okay, maybe I'm not the best person to play right now, and this is just an aspect of my game I can go back and work on after the World Cup. Or, you know, if he doesn't have time to fix that. So I don't think, you know, like, yes, he is the number one T20 batsman in the world, and he's been a fantastic batsman for England. He's pulled them out of some crazy situations. He's won them some crazy games, uh, batting up at the top order. But I also think both he and the England setup knows that that number one ranking was never, ever tested on these kind of pitches. They were tested in England. They were tested in South Africa. They were tested in, I believe, New Zealand when they went over there. But it was never tested on these kind of subcontinent pitches. And we see that that can have an effect on his batting style. So I think if, you know, he, he'll understand that if Joe Root is the right person to bat in for a game or two, he, you know, he has to do it for the betterment of the team. Could they could they possibly play both David Milan, uh, David Milan and Joe Root? Because they, right now they have like three all-rounders in... Ben Stokes, Chris Jordan, and Sam Curran. Assuming Sam Curran is an all-rounder because he plays for CSK in that role. I don't think so. I think England already have, I think, too many, uh, too much competition for spots because they have guys like Sam Billings, Liam Livingstone, who are all very talented ball strikers waiting in the wings. Alex Hales, mm-hmm. too, if Alex. they decide to bring uh, back. So I don't, I think this is the template that England has got England to number one, which is bat around a number three, which I think Joe Root is very perfect for that role again, but just bat around that one player and have five or six game winners uh, on either side of the line and just try to score a bat big and just bat hard, mm-hmm. right? So I think one of the spots in that order with Joe Root would make it maybe a more complete team, but that intimidation factor that England brings, that, oh, we can chase down anything or we can put any score on the board in a feature of their t- uh, of their batting for the last three or four years, that would probably, they would have to sacrifice that. Yeah. But also, you know, with the kind of form that 
all three of Roy, Butler, and Bearstow have shown recently. I don't think you're sacrificing too much. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been absolutely excellent. This series was just another example of that. You know, there was never even some of the chases that, or sorry, yeah, sorry, even in, in some of the chases that England lost, there were still moments where you're like, oh, they could still do this. They could still knock down India's score, or when they were setting a target, you know. The, they could have set a really, really big score. Can India chase this? So I think you might be sacrificing a little, but I don't think you're sacrificing too much. Okay, um, let's move on to the one-day series. Um, now, before we get into this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reiterate a point I made in one of the earlier podcasts that one-day cricket is the worst form of the game because once again, <laughs> here we have another fantastic one-day series with no context to it. Nope. Super League point. <laughs> no context. Like, what? But at the same time, if you, if you don't play for, you know, ODI is up, you know, in, in the period in between World Cups, how do you prepare your team for it? Because it is a different format at the end of the day. Okay, now look at the calendar this year. What major events are coming up? You have the IPL coming up. You just had a T20 series. You have the T20 World Cup later in the year. What what are the teams no, going to get out of I an ODI right now? The 2023 World Cup for ODIs is also in India. So I think any team will treat an ODI series in the subcontinent as potential like preparation for that, to see which type of players can score in that type of environment, which type of bowlers can take wickets in that type of environment. So maybe some ODIs, of course, there's world, uh, sorry, um, Super League points on the line, but I think especially for subcontinent series, I think with the England just being flat track bullies, uh, it's like the popular um, like mentality surrounding their thing. I think they would have appreciated, and which they did make really good use of, the three-match ODI series in subcontinent. It did wonders to show how their team can play on different surfaces as well. Yeah. Mm. Um. I'd like to say one one thing about the ODI series, and specifically about the first two games. And I think it was these, for, I mean, obviously the first two games alternating made the third series the exciting decider, but the way in which the first two games were won was really, really indicative of how those teams play, I felt. Uh, if you look at the first game, India set uh, not a huge total by current ODI standards, but a, a reasonable and respectable total and especially a defendable total, which is exactly what they did. They they set that total, and then they bowled England out for, uh, I think, a 60-run uh, margin. So I think that, that was kind of, yeah, 66-run margin. So I think that was very indicative of how India likes to play with a, a lot of reliance on their bowlers to win the matches. And their bowlers stepped up. I mean, Prasad Krishna got smacked for 20 early, really early on into his bowling uh, innings and he still came back and took the best ODI figures for an Indian on debut. So I think that was really, really uh, an exemplary showing of what India has to bring in the current ODI format. And then in the second ODI, I think that's exactly the exact opposite is England won in England's way, which was just bashing their way to a huge, huge, huge chase. They, you know, they, yes, they gave up 336 runs to India that's probably not what they wanted to do, but considering they didn't have a lot of the best bowlers with Wokes, Wood, and uh, Archer gone. But then their batsmen set it off, and they smacked their way to a 337-run chase, uh, probably one of their biggest, this is, I think, in their top eight biggest chases of all time. 
all of which have come within the past couple of years following the 2015 World Cup. So this is it was really interesting to see those two games being won in the way that their respective teams like to win. Yeah, um, um, yeah. It, it was pretty, like, you could see these these are the top two one-day sides in the world, and they both have very different approaches, particularly with the bat. You have England, who have the depth to be able to go um, striking at a high run rate throughout their innings, while you have India, who want their top batters to conserve their wickets and then go hard in the end. Um, this ODI series, we saw both approaches, and we saw that both actually work. Yep, definitely. I think this series also just showed that how good that these batsmen are on either side. I think it really shows that golf, right? Because these batsmen, I think there's a different array of batsmen every game. Like we saw Bear Stowe in one, we saw Sam Hearn, we saw Stokes, we saw everyone just. They, how easy they make a ball striking. And I think compared to other ODI teams, it just shows how big the gulf is, I think, between the top two ODI teams and then the rest of the ODI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, j- just one thing before we wrap this up. Um, what We just have to mention this incredible innings played by Fakhar Zaman in the game against South Africa. Oh, <laughs> so sad. That's heartbreaking. Oh, my God. I I look at that scorecard and that is the most depressing thing. I mean, I saw the last couple uh, overs of that match and, I mean, he was playing his heart out. He was smacking fours. He was trying to do everything to get his team across the line and he just couldn't do it. And it, t- it took real mind games from uh, Quinton de Kock to run him out. But That is what happens when yeah. you use 100% of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> 193, uh, seven months away. Poor guy. But I think that just shows, right? They needed 215 off 130 mm-hmm. balls at one point with half the team back in yeah. the line. And from that point, for uh, Fakhar Zaman to get them to this point, like where they lost, where they needed, what, where they lost the 17 yes. runs, that was phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And he was the only person to cross 50. And on top of that, he was the only per- I mean, uh, the second highest score on his team was 31 from Barbarazan. So that that just, what, what a what a gem of innings. That's pretty right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. But last thing I wanted to say was uh, Liam Livingstone. I wanted to just uh, touch on that point. We haven't seen much of him, but don't you guys like? What do you guys think about his ODI series performance? I thought he batted really well, considering it was he came in in tough situations and just straight off the yeah. bat got to his work. Livingston is a very very exciting talent. He did really really well. Do you think Livingstone could be a replacement for um, someone in the T20 squad, or do you think the T20 squad is fine, considering his performance in the ODIs? It'll take an injury, but I think he's probably moved up that back. Like in the substitutes, he's probably moved up that pecking queue. I think he'll. The fact that he's not playing the IPL though is probably something that they'll keep. He is. He is. He is. Wh- which team? Yeah. Oh, Rajasthan. Okay. Yes. Okay. 